Welcome to Dialogue Out Loud Interviews. My name is Margaret Olson-Hemming, and I'm the art editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today, I'm here with one of the artists whose art can be found in, in the winter 2023 issue of the journal. Jamal Qureshi is a American Norwegian artist who lives in Norway, and we're going to hear a little bit about uh, his work. Um, this is his, the piece that you find on the cover uh, called Nephi's Psalm is his only um, sort of work work that has gone out into the world and uh, become well-known. He's not a professional artist, but I think this, this piece is pretty extraordinary. Um, and so if you can look it up um, and be sure you're looking at it, we're going to have an interesting conversation about, about the Psalm of Nephi. Jamal Qureshi, welcome to Dialogue Out Loud. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, tell me about your work as an amateur artist and how you got into um, digital artwork. Um, I'm a tinker, I suppose. Um, I I suppose I'm a bit more of a, a person with kind of a blend of technical and more sort of soft topic um, issues that I'm in. So, um, I studied Arabic at BYU and in Cairo as well at American University of Cairo. Um, I've spent a good chunk of my life in the Middle East as well. Mm. Half my family is Muslim and I follow Pakistani. So I have a family this. Call themselves a Muslim family. Um, so I just kind of always had this interest in sort of Islamic arts, so obviously a deep interest in the gospel. Um, and actually, it's probably there. I was tinkering one day, learning some some new skills, and yeah, and, yeah just sort of popped the bed. I could put something big on like this. Um, one of the things that that Apple was, I you know, don't have any particular, <laughs> I guess, technical skills as an artist. Um, so, but I had to the concept of what I wanted to do. So I just kind of went thinking what are the tools I could use that I actually know I use. Um, so the whole thing was actually put together in Microsoft Word. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of an odd project one way. Um, but I was able to get it to do what I wanted it to do. Right. And then, but we had some very nice sort of, uh, fine art quality thanks to the G Clay printer. Um, but that was just pillar genesis of it. You know, I, you know, the soul of Nephi is a piece of script that's only stood out to me. And I've always loved Arabic calligraphy. Um, and so I just, yeah, kind of this vision that kind of evolved and uh, but I could put something together and I did. So it's no fancy story about it. Um, so this is, I mean, you're, you're using traditional Arabic or Muslim, I should say, traditional Muslim art um, with Arabic lettering. Is that right? Yeah, and it's all in Arabic. It's all in Arabic, and um, and you have the the. Is it the complete psalm? Yes. Yeah. It was take it straight from the book of the boy. Okay, and then there are some other words on there as well, right? I. Uh, 
Yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll be honest, it's been over 20 years. So part of me is sort of like, I'm not sure how well it's aged in my own mind. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's been great. A lot of people love it. Um, but what I did was I took a very straightforward, uh, example from Ottoman architecture, where if you're going to the large Ottoman mosque and you look up into the ceiling, um, right, you've got the dome and then in each corner of the dome, you'll have these other discs sort of as the transition zone to the broader building. Um, and on those discs, they put the names of the four, um, what we call the, the caliphs, the successors to Muhammad, mm-hmm. um, as yeah, just sort of the sign of yeah, those who show how Islam property well, and those were the four sort of caliphs you can see the rightly guided ones. So you have this this traditional style. Um, so I just sort of took that and said, okay, similar principle. Uh, I put together the four names of the people who say were responsible for making sure we had an assault by. Um, and then in the center of the very large lettering, it just says, Allah, God. Well, that's, I, I, I think it's just incredible. And so I believe the four names in the corners are Nephi, Lehi, Mormon, and Joseph? Uh, I believe Moroni. Moroni and Joseph. Okay. And then Allah in the center. Yes. Oh, um, yeah, and I, I just think it's so striking with the the gold against the blue. Um, you know, visually, it's just beautiful. And then you dig down into these layers of identity that you have brought to it. And to me, there's just nothing else like it in, in Mormon art. So thank you for sharing it. As, okay. So you grew up in the United States, spent lots of time in the Middle East as well, and now you live in Norway? I grew up in really parapathetic. Um, so born in Colorado, I was a year old, we moved to Saudi Arabia. I was there till I was 10. Came back to the States, grew up in Colorado, actually the middle school, high school, went to the Y, uh, started a mission in the UK, came back, finished at the Y, moved to Egypt for a year. I got married. Um, then we lived in DC for well, what was that? <laughs> Seven years. Um, New York for a while, then to Norway, Southern Norway and Stellar. Five years, came back to the States and then moved up to the Stellar in Norwegian Arctic territory. Been around a few places. Wow. And you were telling me earlier that you are currently in the northernmost town in the world. Yes, it's still called Longyear Bean. Um, so yeah, we live on this uh, island archipelago um, that's part of Norway called Svalbard, and it's the set of islands halfway between the top of Norway, top of Europe, and the North Pole. So I think we're about as close to the North Pole as we are in Norway. Wow. So normally at this point in the interview, we talk about um, you know how people became artists and how their art figures in the context of of sort of current Mormon context and discussions. Um, you are unusual in being 
you know, an amateur artist uh, for our cover. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you spend your time uh, day to day. What brought you to this archipelago? Um, yeah, sure. And yeah, like Mike, maybe you'll have a little bit of a background that I think was important to how this came about too. Um, like I said, I have lived a significant portion of my life in the Middle East. Um, that way, by the way, is Muslim. Um, so I've been, I think, very invested and cared a great deal about some of the church in the Middle East. Um, historically, Jordan's and really born. Um, so, you know, I've been involved tangentially in a lot of the developments in the church in the region for many decades now. Um, and, you know, the, there was a time, especially if you go back 20 years and more, um, you could almost count on one hand the number of Arab members in the church. I exaggerate a bit, but, you know, it was a small group and I knew a lot of those folks. Um, it has grown, thankful, positively, though still small. Um, but a, a large portion of my life has been very, very focused on that and dedicated and caring about how the church goes into the links to the lodge, you know, my friends, the thing they go through. Um, so I, I've got this personal connection um, that I really care about. It's going to be part of my life. So the fact that I've been very tied to between Middle Eastern, Arab, and world, and broader Muslim culture, um, that's has done something for me where it's I try to see a certain harmony um it's obviously very easy when you grow up in the church have a fairly narrow view of the work um and I say that not sort of disparaging folks because I you know I grew up for Lord pushing a life in sort of that world too it's not it's not a negative thing and that it's, you know, powerful community, and, you know, all, all those wonderful things about the church, being able to plug into the church and where you go. At the same time, I think sometimes we forget that we are 0.1% or so in the world. <laughs> um, so seeing, I think, how the gospel can tie in and relate um, to other cultures, because at the end of the day, you know, the restored gospel is not about, you know, the, the culture we formed. The, the culture we formed in the church came about for, for perfectly good reasons, historical, you know, people came from certain places, and the that way. But it is just a moment to call mm -hmm. it, um, that we created. And the restored gospel is something that fits into, you know, the, the much broader work. But certainly if it's going to continue to grow and spread, it needs to be tied to the broad world in, in much greater ways. And, and you know, we're seeing that develop and obviously go back, you know, especially to the purposes of McKay and moving forward as the church really internationalized after the war. Um, we've seen more of that, but it, you know, we've got to come in bits and starts. We, we kind of kick back sometimes and all like, and that's going a little too far. Um, so there's a grown up. So 
for me, just with the background I've had, um, you know, I was I was trying to create something that could kind of blend back and show how things could fit into that larger culture, how it could blend into Middle East, just like artists are doing things with, you know, Chinese calligraphy and art, right? I mean, you did. Uh, it, this came apart, or Kid Rod is part of the Church's International Art Competition. And that, I think, has been a perfect example, too, where I'm talking about more broadly. Um, it's, I, I think it's just absolutely one of the most wonderful things the church has done culturally. Um, you know, you go to those competitions, and okay, I guess there's a lot of very traditional Utah American, sure. There is such a great inclusion of just pieces from all around the world, all different projects. And it's, and it's been great too to see how some of that now is, is leading into official church usage and just sort of cultural usage of the church. Right. They're actually using the artists instead of just having them in the competition. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this is all part of the church too, kind of going from a place where maybe we're in a, still in a little bit of a bunker mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because the, there was a purpose to correlation and all these things, trying to unify things. You know, a flash going church means some standardization. I get that. There was, was a real way to that. And now the church is realizing, okay, I think we need to, to broaden our horizons. But, um, but you have to do it in a way as well, in a way that doesn't just kind of blow everything apart. <laughs> you know, um, larger organization needs to sensitive to where people are at as well as where you want to go. Um, so I think this kind of art that the church has been encouraging is just it's a it's a really powerful and wonderful tool to do that. Um I said my piece in not thinking anything. I might just thought, oh there's people yeah. but I mean it was hard stuff, you know, I put it together, but I also did a series of it. Um so it would, was actually right nice. That was that was nice. Fact that there could be something unique like that, that backgrounds that people can see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's is kind of the background, right? I'm very tight. Um, as far as who I am beyond that, uh, how we wound up in Svalbard. Tell, hold on for th- just yeah, one minute. Tell me more about, um, you know, I, you, you are operating in a fairly unusual space here um, with. You know, you were saying there are very few members of the church in the Middle East. From your perspective, um, what would you like to see the church do or the church um, or the sort of Mormon art world do, um, not just to be more sensitive to being a, a global church, but specific to the Middle East, like what could, what would you imagine in a in a more perfect world? Um, well, the Dubai Temple is such an opportunity. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and I have to say that one just just absolutely flabbergasted and blew me away. When it was, I mean, that was just something you dreamed of. It was so far beyond <laughs> what seemed remotely possible. Mm-hmm. And even now, it's it's a, it's a bold step to take it like things are up, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think that's a wonderful example that can be used uh, artistically to sort of encourage, um, yeah, some artistic expression. 
that can be brought and utilized there, whether it's in the architecture or the artwork that's inside or the detailing. Um, I think those are some, that's a, that's a great opportunity that can be utilized and sort of take in, you know, when we talk about, again, the church kind of needing to broader around some perspectives a bit. Um, I mean, literally it's a such a rich artistic and architectural heritage. Um, it's, it's incredible. And, and, you know, in many ways, this is not the church showing up in the middle East. This is the church returning to the Middle East. Right. I mean, that is the true roots of the okay. church historically. Exactly. Um, it's a home cult, right? In many ways. Um, so I think it's an opportunity to take that to, to maybe, you know, get some artistic expression out of that. Um, so I, how exactly that, that works, how the church taps into that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, when lots I mean, church members who are, you know, connected to the region and live there or whatever, and, you know, are, are artists and utilizing them that are you. Um, and then there's many people do about self-exposure as well, or talented artists. Um, and uh, as well, a lot of this, right. I think, I think. A lot of good art and beauty, um, and tying together the different things. We, I think, we've seen that a bit more in sort of temple architecture too over the past couple of decades or so. Um, which again is kind of going back to our roots, right? Because when the church was in the early days, right? What did we have? I mean, some of the old Utah architecture just right. It's, it's wonderful when wards and stakes were building their own buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot more and raising their own money to do it, building it by land, right? They 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 brought in a lot of their sort of local art and exactly. and and all of that. Exactly. And the church has been using more of it, I think, in in different places around the world. Um I love the Tijuana Temple. I think it's 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 lovely. It's got that cool Spanish architecture really well executed. Um the designs for the temple of you need me as well. I'm looking interesting. Highlands, Cambodia, right? It's still recognizably sort of a modern LDS temple, but sort of pulling in some of those elements. Um, and then occasionally you get an interesting outlier too. So the, the one I always point to for sort of Islamic architecture is the Portland temple. I mean, take Moroni off that and show that to any Muslim, they'll assume it's a mosque. Yeah. Uh, it's and it's really well executed. Uh, so I think I think that is, you know, the kind of thing that um, the church has its bureaucracy for the temples. Uh, you know, I, I think I have probably have to know enough church bureaucrats to know that yes, they can get sucked into the bureaucracy and personal issues of any workplace things like that, but also people. You know, the most part, they're very dedicated and care about what they're doing. Mm. So then bureaucratic process can be infused, you know, with the opportunities for people who really care to pull in more of that art and localization and specifically in the least of the ability. That would be really wonderful. Um, you know, and maybe if the church reaches out to specifically to to different region with the international art competition, I don't know. If there's much outreach per se, it's just kind of more wherever green grown. Uh, but maybe especially for areas in the church where we haven't seen as much, 
Um, the church, I don't know, kind of reaches out to artists that can be positive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, organic things will grow as they grow, you know, where there's not a market or an official purpose, you know, people will, will kind of do their thing. But when the church doing things called through official channels as well, I think it, it can be a powerful tool to encourage that. Huh. Yeah, I I would second, um, I think it would be very exciting to have local artists um, consulted even more than they are, like, thinking about um, the 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 temple that made a big impact on me was the one in Accra, Ghana, where they used local um, textile patterns for the stained glass windows. And I thought that had such an impact of ma- of helping people, local people feel at home in this space, like this is a building for you. Uh, so yeah, I, I think all of those ideas are really, really wonderful. And it, there's, it's not just temples, too. temples are sort of a shiny beacon, but they go, hey, again, we've used cookie cutter churches for a long time and they definitely serve the purpose. And I don't know that the church could have grown at the pace it did. <laughs> we haven't had some standardization like that, but I think there's an increasing opportunity to, to go back to, again, localizing more of these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not just temples, but chapels and art used in them. And, you know the Leon inserts that come in different regions, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I I think your piece here, the Psalm of Nephi, really speaks to the power of, um, you know, an individual identity bringing in all of these parts that many people in the world might see as incompatible and producing something that is, you know, just extremely powerful and beautiful. Yeah. It, yeah, that's been a funny thing too. It's just, I mean, you have the life I had. Um, it, I mean, I'm sure you know plenty of people that very international backgrounds, right? And they lived in lots of different places and had lots of culture exposure kind of thing. I was really glad that well, I did that, that a portion of that was growing up in a very traditional LDS sort of way for part of that. Right. I grew up in Colorado from when I was 10 to when I went off to the line. Um, and so, you know, it was typical sort of suburban ward out west. Um, it was good in that, yeah, it wasn't a majority LDS place, but our high school was probably 5% LDS, something like that. So we had a good, strong community. Um, so that felt very, very normal to me, right? But, you know, being around my Pakistani family felt very, very normal as well. Um, and so, you know, as I've seen sort of people come from that background, you know, the sort of very normal LDS backgrounds that I had as well, and I see a lot of the misconceptions and the prejudices that a lot of people have, you know, against Muslims. And sometimes it's not like 
a super negative thing. It's just that they've grown up with this stereotype in the background, you know? And so they just have certain assumptions. They don't even think about it. There's no ill will behind it, but there are some negative stereotypes. Right. Maybe. They're living in the water of it. Exactly. Uh, and I will say that for the most part, church members, though, are actually much more understanding for the most part. Um, American politics of the last few years has unfortunately weakened that. But in general, you know, I think it's always held. I mean, and this is the thing, right? American, you know, American church members, right? Lean heavily conservative. Uh, they swim in that sea, but, you know, a different kind of conservative has been playing out lots of political analysis, right? There's a greater practicality, greater openness to the world, greater experience with the world, um, a greater sense of where our children will accomplish something in our community. Um, whereas just a lot of people I've known who aren't or even church or no church members are like, you know, just that, that stereotype of Mormons. <laughs> um, so I, I guess when I've been in that situation where I've known people though, who just have these stereotypes and negative prejudices, not because they've nursed any negative feeling, but because like you say, they just swimming in the sea. To me, it's been, to me, it's like, I, I just, it, it makes, I understand why they have it, and simultaneously, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> because, you know, I live in these worlds, they are not opposed. <laughs> They're not remotely opposed. <laughs> um, these things mesh together perfectly well. Right? Um, you know, and... Of course, we show differences, but give an example of this. We were just at a, at a wedding in, in Utah uh, earlier last year now. Um, and so, you know, we had all these church members, different places and stuff. But my father was there, Pakistan, and my half sister. She's Muslim. She works hijab, the whole deal. She's very stereotypical American Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a whole sort of American Muslim generational subculture too, which is actually very similar to LDS culture many months. Mm-hmm. Um and so she was there, I was there with my, my sister and we were talking and all of a sudden I'm explaining the temple to her because uh, she was curious. Okay, so what actually goes on in there? I'm explaining things. I'm actually giving kind of an overview of okay, what's the endowment of her ceilings, things like this, and pointing out some of the architecture and all, all of that. And she's just like, oh, wow, you know, that's just like this angel in Islam. Oh, yeah, that's just like what we do when we go on Hajj, right? Um, you know, there are so many sort of base principles uh, which most people can relate to, right? And, you know, okay, we, we have clear differences theologically, you know, understanding we are when we come to the goal of salvation, all that. And there's differences, um, but fundamentally, um, and, and I wouldn't just apply this to Islam. I would apply this to pretty much any religion out there. Um, fundamentally, we're not looking <laughs> at the world and sort of our humanity fundamentally in different ways, right? Um, you know, there's this idea that obviously when you're in one culture and the other, when the other guy just looks like the green-eyed monster. Um, and you get down to the base of it. 
now. If <laughs> you know, you've got the same basic feelings, um, then you have to ask yourself, okay, then well, what's really different? Well, obviously there aren't there are differences. And in my mind, it comes back to simply and bone okay, what do you think is the reality of the majority? What's actually happening? Uh, uh, that's not meant to be, ah, you're so long, I'm so right. It's just like, to me, it's almost like physics. You know, <laughs> there are laws of physics. You, know? you cannot like some of the results of it, but they are what they are, right? And the purpose of the short gospel is to help people get through, right? And okay, somebody's got a different religion, faith, or belief, and they think it's physics are different than you do, okay? But everybody's trying to figure out physics. Uh, and so we don't, you know, need to sit back and say these things are fundamentally compatible. It's just, it's, it's, Different way of truly to get at the answer. Yeah, thank you. That that's really beautiful. Um, so just quickly before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in an archipelago north of Sweden? North, north uh, Norway. Yes, yes. And Svalbard is a technically is a part of Norway. Uh, so no, we uh, we started a family business here several years ago. Um, and sort of from years of the tourists, eleven years ago, ten and a half years ago, then. Um, Svalbard has this sort of mythical place. When I was a kid, I'd visit Norway every year, but I never got up to the far north. And then Svalbard, something even further way out there, right? So I had a chance to visit. Italian and um, just fell in love with this place. It's so, so different. Look, it's like a moonscape up here. Um, just glaciers and Arctic deserts. Interestingly, the the geology of the landscape actually reminds me a lot of southern Utah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Got a mountain overlooking the town that I always call Svalbard's Mount Tipanogos. Looks very similar in village. <laughs> uh, so I came up here for the first time, fell in love with the place, and you know, without telling a very, very long story, at the end of the day, we had a business. Um, so we, for several years, ran a, a company called Svalbard. I mean, it's basically uh, a luxury bottle. So, um, so it was a, a really unique product. Um, we did that for several years. At the end of the day, various circumstances, we closed the company. Um, but we've been up here seven years. What well, we just decided to say from the time of being, you know, my wife and I both work remotely and uh, she actually works for a company in Utah about things. Um, and we have a son at university in the, in the north of Norway as well, in the mainland. So we can experience. Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, and she- just offered such an interesting um, perspective here that I think is, you know, quite different from any artist we've had before. So thank you for sharing your art with Dialogue Journal. And thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your work and your your thoughts about, um, you know, issues of culture and your experiences. Thanks. I appreciate the help. Thank you. The 
Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network.